Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini and on this episode we're going to talk about the education budget crisis and how it affects special education. This is a problem that has caused a huge debate in almost every school district in the state of Michigan and it's also affecting nearly every school district in every state across the nation. For years now, we've been hearing that our public education system is broken, schools are wasting millions of dollars, and our kids are suffering. We've heard that the schools are beyond fixing, and that the only hope is to throw public education out and replace it with other, more modern ideas. But is that really true? Are our public schools really on the brink of disaster? Or is this a lot of gross exaggeration by some corporate interests who want to take over the public education system for their own profits? And even if it is true, what does that have to do with special education? For many people, there's a belief that special education is one of those untouchable areas of education. That it's safe, it's protected, it will always be funded. Of course, the problem with that is, if that isn't true, that if special education could be at risk with all other aspects of public education, then what will happen if it's greatly scaled back or even eliminated? Could special education really be eliminated? And if so, what would replace it? Well, our guest for this episode can help shed some light on this subject. She'll talk about the entire education crisis, how it started and what the causes are, and how bad things might become if certain political and business interests get their way. Elizabeth Welch-Likens, welcome to Special Parents Confidential. Now, Elizabeth, you have an interesting background. You're a labor and employment lawyer. You're also an elected member of your local school board in East Grand Rapids, Michigan, and you're a member of the legislative committee for that school district. How did you become active in school issues? You are correct. Um, My day job is a labor employment law attorney. I actually work with small businesses um, on a regular basis and then some, you know, um, helping folks negotiate contracts and that kind of thing, non-compete issues. So I do that. That's my day job. But I also, for the last nine years maybe, had become involved. Uh, Our school district has something called a legislative committee, which keeps parents informed on issues in both Lansing and Washington, D.C. that directly impact our children in our schools. And we have this great committee that's been very active, and I had been serving on that. And what happened in the last few years is the attacks on education had become, I guess I'd call it full throttle, and our committee really, really had to step it up as far as our education efforts with our parents and even just going to Lansing and fighting for schools. And that work became you know, more more all-encompassing, and essentially I was approached uh, about a year ago by some folks, a little more than a year ago now, to run for school board, because there, I think, was a recognition that we need, you know, people in leadership who understand the importance of what's happening in Lansing and how it impacts our schools, because we can do everything possible at the local level to be great, but none of that matters if Lansing doesn't fund us. So I was asked to run, and I did. I had a competitive race, um, you know, four people running for two spots, and I knocked on, you know, every voter's door in our district and spoke to the voters and was real proud to get elected and um, have been serving since January. That's great. That's great. So let's get into uh, the, the heart of the issue, which, of course, is the public education and the problems that are going on there. Now, for years we've been hearing from political organizations and media pundits that the whole entire national public school system is broken. How did they arrive at this conclusion? You know, it's really interesting. Um, (laughs) 
we keep hearing this, and it's funny because I, I don't think you and I think, and we hear it, that it's everywhere now. And the new rhetoric is it's not just, you know, um, you know challenge, urban challenges or rural districts. It's now everyone is failing. We are failing our children. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting to me. I am uh, one of those kids who moved back to the district I grew up in, and my kids are in the same schools, even having some of the same teachers. And I... I know they're getting an excellent education. I really do know that. You know, nothing's ever perfect, but I, I, they are really getting a good education. And so it's interesting to me. I keep hearing this rhetoric, and I, I really think, you know, there's a gal who's on the State Board of Ed, and she'll talk about this, how if your goal is to make, you know, if you really want to affect change and essentially break, you know, government, which is a little bit of the agenda here. You know, one of the top expenditures that state governments spend their money on is schools, which that's what we should be spending our money on as opposed to, say, prisons. Um, but we, you have to then make the schools look bad. And um, you, there's a gal who's on the State Board of Ed who um, has this great speech about, you know, you pass laws like No Child Left Behind where you're supposed to have, you know, this incredibly high level of reading proficiency where everybody is proficient by 2014, an impossible standard, an impossible standard, um, given the short period of time and the fact that we educate everyone in this nation. Most countries don't. Um, And you then set very high scores, and then people can't achieve them. Mm -hmm. And then you have to blame someone, and that's when we turn to, you know, teachers and teachers' unions and, you know, administration, and you point the blame, and then you start saying, oh, see, everything's bad, and now we've we've got to reform. And then you, you know, convince people that all the options are bad, so any option's better, even if the options are not even proven to be better. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very frustrating. And um, there's a wonderful ISD superintendent over in Oakland County, over in the metro Detroit area. Her name is Vicki Markovich, and she talks very passionately about the fact that actually when you adjust for poverty, we blow the whole world out of the water on our test scores. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, Finland, which has very high test scores, has 5% poverty. We're now, I don't even know, I don't know the actual numbers. I think it's in the 20s, you know, as far as children that are on free and reduced lunch nationally. It's a very high number. Right. And you, if you adjust for poverty, we're, we're doing a great job. And we're one of, the, like, as I said, we're one of the only nations in the world where we really do educate everyone. I can tell you right now, China is not having their children who have special needs and who have extreme poverty and live in very rural areas, they're not taking those tests. Right. Well, that was interesting because I, I was at a seminar recently and somebody had been to China and uh, gone through their public education system. It was a couple of people who were talking about this. And they said something that just kind of shocked me. I didn't realize this, but in China, it's from what I understand, all, uh, everyone is given a public education until about the age of, I think it's eight or 10. Right. And then. Only the top third to the top one fourth are allowed to continue. Right. So now figure out how we're look at that. We're getting compared. We're continuing on with everyone, including kids with some pretty you know big special needs. You know we're mainstreaming and which that's great. That that's a policy that's worked for many families. Um, but we are including that set. We're also including kids who certainly aren't in the top quarter. So we're including everyone in our test scores. Right. So I, yet I know we're. And yet, that's a great policy. We should be inclu- doing, you know, educating everyone. Mm-hmm. But it's not apples to apples when you're comparing these countries. And now these scores are being used against us. Right. We're getting penalized because we educate everybody. And so that is sort of ha- what has happened. The numbers have been turned on their head. 
you know, a lot of us who've looked at the inside and looked at the data from a different lens have, you know, there's a lot we're doing really, really well. And if it, I mean, as I've said, if, it, if we're doing such a bad job, then why do all these nations want to send their kids here to be educated? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, China is trying, like, desperately to get their kids over here for college, where they're in college with our kids who came through the, you know, our education system. Right. So if our education is, it, it, the, the colleges are filled with kids who learned at, you know, the, you know, our, edu- you know, K-12 education system. So we must be doing something right, because they're somehow going to college. And those Chinese, you know, families want to get their children over here. Some, you know, actually more and more they're wanting to get them over here for high school. Right. Or even grade school. And even grade school. There's a recognition that there's something different that we do in the United States. And I, you know, I get on a soapbox about this. We actually traditionally have done a pretty good job of teaching critical thinking and risk-taking and entrepreneurship, all the things that have made our nation great. And it's so fascinating that we're trying to become more like, say, China, where you, you know, master math facts and, you know, things like that that are very important but they're not the end-all, be-all. There's something else our education system has done very well, and a lot of the world knows that, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that we're not trying to do more of that. Yeah. Well, let's go along with that. There are so many misconceptions out there about public education and expenses. What are some of the biggest ones that you've noticed, and what are people saying about that? Yeah, and I can't, I mean, obviously this is unique from state to state. Every state is funded differently. So one of it is, is oh, and we hear this rhetoric, it's become... Um, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and if I, every time I heard from, you know, this certain group that, oh, this is all about just adult issues, adult issues, and if we just make it about the kids, then we'll understand better the changes that have to be made. Mm-hmm. Well, they claim it's adult, an adult issue every time we ask for more money. Of course, services, we are in the service industry. That's what education is. It does cost money. So it is very offensive to me when they say, all you education people do is ask for more and more and more. Well... In Michigan, where obviously we live, um, we have had to ask for more because we have been cut to the bone. So to sit there and use this rhetoric as if they've given us all this money and we haven't spent it well, I can't. Obviously, there are districts that are fiscally irresponsible. We know that. They're out there. But honestly, I think the majority have done everything in their power to do the right thing. So there is a misconception that, like, education has just been thrown or money has just been thrown at education and it has been spent irresponsibly. Again, I'm on the inside now. I'm sitting on a board. I am watching um, the, you know, T's crossed, I's dotted, doing everything on the inside to spend money wisely, you know, and operate on a shoestring and deliver the same amount of services. And that's the thing. I mean, imagine running a business where your demand is the same, if not higher, but you keep you keep making less money. Right. Usually if your demand goes up, your money goes up. Well, <laughs> so, that's the way it should be. And in be. this instance, that's not the case. It's the opposite. We have, you know, more and more requirements. Um, from federal and state governments, no money to go with it. And then on top of it, um, increasing costs that have been passed along to local school districts. And again, I'm speaking from Michigan, but it's a trend nationwide that the cuts have been severe. I mean, you have school districts in Los Angeles where they have, you know, over 50 children in a classroom. Right. I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. Right. And they keep cutting to the point where I know I have friends in L.A. and they tell me some of the schools there don't even have working plumbing systems. Right. And the kids are forced to go there. They can't go to the bathroom. Right. So sit there and tell me that when I'm asking for money for a school like that and you say that I'm focused on an adult issue, are you kidding me? Yeah. I need money so the kids can have proper working toilets. I mean, that's just unacceptable. And that's where I think, um, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric out there against the schools now. It's it's amazing to me. I don't know how 
you know, how it happened that, you know, teachers became bad guys and schools became bad guys and that, you know, we're trying to expect the schools to solve all of society's social ills. That's impossible. Um, you know, obviously we know a lot of these districts exist in areas with huge economic challenges and, so, you know, social challenges. But, you know, obviously we know in the end the schools can't solve all the problems. And if we're going to expect them to solve all the problems, you've got to give them, you know, resources that involve human services and assistance, you know, that stretch outside the school. Right. And so these districts are having to do all of that and more um, with the same amount of money, if not less. So, you know, we've got, we've got a real challenge in that regard. Um, so I think that's one misconception, that schools are well-funded and that the money is abused somehow. And that's obviously just not true. I, again, there are always exceptions where there's some bad management or things like that. But I can say, speaking about the state of Michigan, I've met with many superintendents now and folks around the state who have been extremely responsible and had to make some terribly difficult decisions. So, um, you know, they are fiscally responsible, but, yeah, who's, who's getting hurt? I mean, kids are getting hurt because they're having to cut, you know, programs that are essential, and they don't have any choice because they haven't been given enough money. So um, I think, too, there's um, a misconception about, and this isn't me, like, just defending administrations, but, you know, oh, all the administrators are overpaid and there's too many of them. Again, I can only speak for West Michigan. I can say that most of the districts here are really, really lean. I, I, recognizing every, there are probably exceptions to every rule, but um, most districts have had made deep, deep cuts at that level. Um, that's the first place they cut. Um, we also have to attract talent. I know our district has some incredibly talented people, and um, if you don't have if you don't pay them, people don't come. And so, you know, for example, someone who does um, the job our business superintendent does could very easily work in the private sector and make a whole lot more money. Um, and, he, you know, he's very talented and very good at his job, and this budget navigation we've had to do has been incredibly difficult. Right. And without someone who understands all the nuances and tax policy and all that and all that's going on in Lansing, um, we, we would be, I think, in trouble. And I think... Um, Having talented people in those spots is really important. Just like it's important to pay teachers and attract talented people there, you've got to attract good leaders of the districts too. You know, businesses don't run without a president. You need somebody to run the ship. Exactly. So especially because Lansing keeps putting more regulation on as far as you know evaluations and tying evaluations to compensation and all these different things, somebody's got to be in charge of all that. So, you know, and that's hard because that's a people want the dollars to get into the classroom. And again. Um, you know, luckily in our district, the vast majority of the dollars do get into the classroom. And um, I think that's, you know, important to know is it's easy to cast blame when we're in budget-cutting mode. Um, it's easy to blame people. They want to blame their school, their school board or, you know, their administrators. And I do think most districts in Michigan are doing a pretty darn good job there. Mm -hmm. Again, on a shoestring. You know, you can hear a pin drop in most of these administrative offices. They've been cut so to the bone. So that's another, I think, misconception. I think, too, um, funding, uh, people still don't understand, and again, this is unique to Michigan, every state's different. Mm -hmm. uh, in Michigan, the schools are funded basically through Lansing. So it used to be before 1994, uh, people could go out and pass a local millage, and local millages almost entirely supported the school system, um, which worked great if you were in a place where millages passed. So um, you would have, you know, sort of areas with more affluent populations spending, you know, 10000 or more per child and areas where that wasn't the case spending maybe 3000 per child. Right. So you can imagine that, let, you know, led to a pretty huge disparity in school districts. 
so there was a movement in the early 90s to try to fix that, and at the same time there was sort of a property tax revolt going on because people's property taxes were very, very high in a lot of the upper Midwest states, Michigan in particular. So there was sort of a deal cut. It's very long, and it involved John Engler and the legislator and ballot proposals. And basically the bottom line is Prop A got on the ballot, and that changed how schools are funded. And we now, there were several, it raised the sales tax 2%. Um, we went from four to six percent in Michigan. Mm-hmm. It threw in some, you know, alcohol, tobacco taxes, some lottery money, uh, and it created a K-12 pot of money. We all still pay in a little bit into, um, you know, there's a portion of our property tax bills that still do go to the K-12 pot. Um, it is much smaller than what it used to be when we paid locally to our schools, but there's an amount that goes into the big pot of money in Lansing now, and then the money just gets divvied up per child in your district. Um, that's what they call seat time when they have count day, and that's how they decide how much money your district gets per child. They take the pot of money divided by the number of students in the state, and that's what everybody gets. Now there's a formula, so some districts still get quite a bit more than others, although it's come together, you know, the lowest district's around 7,000 now. Then there's some higher districts that are still allowed to hold they still have some old millages they were allowed to keep in place right. that, you know, maybe get, you know, 11 or 12,000. So there's still a big disparity, but it is still much better than it used to be. So the goal is to, you know, get everybody sort of on the same page as far as funding. The wild card that a lot of people didn't think about in 1994 was the um, advent of charter schools. Right. And what that did was those kids could now get pulled out of the local school districts and opt into charter schools, and that money follows the child. So, of course, this effort to, like, equalize our schools and, um, you know, make funding more equal, uh, interestingly enough, <laughs> in a lot of those districts that were challenged, has failed because those districts were challenged, so the parents have opted to go somewhere else. So while that district may be getting more money per child, they have less children. Right. So that's what's happened, and so I guess we can, I, I understand there's differences of opinions as to whether school of choice is the, you know, end-all, be-all answer. You know, I think the data roots out that it isn't. You know, there's a lot of challenges with those schools. A lot of those schools do a really good job of steering special needs kids away. Um, they don't want expensive kids. Right. You know, <laughs> so they are often run by for-profit management companies, and the vast majority of them in the state of Michigan are. It's different than in other states. Other states, there's more of a nonprofit model, but in Michigan, they are very for-profit driven. So um, it's created quite a a headache for a lot of school districts. Well, let's let's talk about special education problems with the budgets while we're at it. Uh, Some people are under the belief that special education is almost fully financed by the federal government, and there shouldn't be any concern about cuts to the budget. But that's not exactly true, is it? That's correct, and it's actually really um, it's, it's frustrating and um, a very difficult issue because obviously I, I don't think anyone disputes that um, kids with special needs, you know, whether they just need a little support or intervention or whether they need full services, no one disputes school districts need to provide that, and that's one of their jobs. I mean, we all know that, um, whether it's legally or morally required, you know, it's the right thing to do. And... A lot of people believe they don't understand, you know, why is this, you know, why do we have all these protocols? And Well, the reality is, is there are laws. Um, there are laws as to how you get diagnosed and how your child gets services um, because it is tied to federal and state money. So that's not just laws, that, that's not just the local district trying to be difficult. That's actually required by state and federal law that they kind of jump through these hoops because they're getting state and federal money. 
Now, they do get state and federal money, but only up until a certain point. So I can't speak for, you know, every district's different. There's districts that have a lot of poverty, so they get, you know, what's called Title I money. You know, if you have a certain number, you know, depending on how many children on free and reduced lunch, your number's higher. Um, in, I can speak, you know, we're a very, I'm in a very small school district. We only have 3,000 kids. So we don't have, um, you know, nearly the number as, say, some other districts. But I do know, you know, just for example, we get um, roughly between all of our funding, between state, federal, and county, we get um, about $2.3 million uh, to provide all kinds of services. Um, some of that's reading support, some of that's actual special ed direct, you know, services. It's all different. Uh, but our actual expenses are closer to like 2.6, 2.7 million. So we that you know in, in our little district, um, that's a three hundred thousand dollar shortfall. So that money has to come from somewhere, and it obviously comes from the general fund. So and that's where it comes from. Other districts, you know, that shortfall obviously might be even wider, and they do have to dig into the general fund. So that means they're having to do that, um, and then you know presumably cut you know art or music or, you know, things like that. They have to find the money somewhere. Right. And in this day and age, there is no extra money. No. So it means maybe they have to, you know, cut class sizes and have, you know, bigger, you know, or uh, increase class sizes and cut teachers or who knows. I mean, all the different ways people are balancing budgets now. So there's, there's nothing they can do about it. It's a required, it's by law, and we, you know, everybody understands that. But it's unfortunate because it's the right thing to do, but, you know, we, it would be good to have money to match the right thing to do. So, yes, they are given a substantial sum of money, uh, but it's not enough. Uh, I think virtually every district in the state is having to dig into um, their their general budget to cover the cost. Right, and then that leads to cutting other services, too. For example, uh, here we had to uh, eliminate some what we call parapros. Other districts call them teacher's assistants. They assist with the special needs some and of those special kids. education I know, kids. or, you know, I've been very public about my own children who... You know, didn't qualify for anything, you know, um, any actual official diagnosis, but both needed reading support. And who helped tremendously with that? People like Parapros. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm deeply concerned about that. I actually fought very publicly for our Parapros to figure out a way to save them. And it was, you know, one of those difficult decisions. The only way we were going to save them was to dig more into reserves. And I understand my fellow board members, you know, at some point... You know, we can't keep digging through reserves, particularly if you see the budget projections for the next two years. They're abysmal again. Mm -hmm. So we've been backed into a corner where we're having to cut essential services um, because Lansing just refuses to fund us properly. Right. So it is fair to say that special education is, of course, being affected by all these budget cuts, even though the claim is that they're not because they're protected by the federal government. But but what they're doing is they're cutting extra programs, extra helps, and assistance across the board. Yeah, I think it's it's a fair statement to say, I mean, I don't want to single out any one group, it's a fair statement to say all children are affected by deep cuts. Right. And so certainly there are certain populations within that group. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of districts have had to cut art, music, and gym, and there's some kids that benefit, maybe some kids who struggle in school in different ways or have different learning styles that we know art is one area they thrive. And a lot of districts, I mean, gosh, a ton have already, they cut that long ago. Right. So um, there's no question that when you cut services, people are impacted. I mean, otherwise, why did it exist in the first place? Right, yeah. So there's some major concerns there when you see the budget cuts that are being forced on us because it's, it's affecting everybody. It is affecting everyone. And like I said, it's not just affecting, 
you know, kids who might have special needs, but it's affecting the kid who just in second grade needed a little extra support. And I will say our district has done a great job reconfiguring and looking at different learning styles and setting up classrooms differently and doing everything they can to minimize the impact. Um, but obviously, when you cut hands in a classroom, it has an impact. I mean, it has to. So um, I heard from the kindergarten, first, second, third grade teachers, and they, you know, they talked about how essential those teachers' assistants or, you know, the parapros are. Right. They talked about how they were just that extra set of eyes, you know, in the back of the classroom or, you know, when working on little assignments or reading and math. And, and of course, we all know that. I mean, it's intuitive, you know, so... Two, two people in a classroom versus one is a big difference. Definitely. Now, I know this is probably speculation, but uh, is it a coincidence that so many state public education systems are suddenly finding themselves with all these emergency budget plans <laughs> and problems? Yeah, and it's so funny, depending on whose who's spin you read, I've got one newsletter that I get sent every week by a group called the Mackinac Center, and they keep talking about the overspending crisis in these districts. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how are they overspending when all of us have cut our budgets by millions in the last few years? Right. <laughs> so, so we've all cut our budgets, and then every year they keep giving us less money. And then suddenly these districts are in financial distress, and as of last week they chose to actually dissolve a couple of those districts. Right, I read about that. Yeah, so... You know, it's and, – and I can't speak to those districts if there was financial mismanagement. Those districts had severe challenges. Again, the charter school rate on their kids has been massive. You know, they had a huge plummet in the number of kids in their school district, um, which obviously is – you know, contributes even further to the fiscal crisis. So give the school districts less money, have their children rated, and you're obviously setting up a recipe for a disaster. Um, interestingly, it's not clear how the lines are going to be drawn for those districts. We've these communities that have existed forever are now going to be broken up, essentially, and siphoned off. So, you know, kids, you know, that all have grown up going to school together are going to get split up between three different school districts. And it's not real clear how welcome into those new school districts they're going to be. Right. Well, they're <laughs> so, also going to be. They're also going to be a financial drain on these other school districts too, who were suddenly were they were budgeting for a certain population of students, and suddenly they find like hundreds more have suddenly been forced on them that they weren't expecting. Right, well, the, they will, the money planned. will follow, but interestingly, not all the money. There's local millage money, oh. which is going to, because we still, um, the way Michigan works, you can still pass local millages to pay for buildings and stuff, and so, but, you know, that all goes into a big pot, and uh, they, some of that local money that, you know, there's some uh, small amounts, that, that little part, uh, it's very complicated, but there's a small amount that goes to the state fund, um, that money is going to stay with the local districts to pay off the debts. So the, the local taxpayers are still going to be responsible for the debt, even though the district is no longer going to exist. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, some of that, that money that goes into the school aid fund is going to stay to help pay off the debt. So that's now not going to go into the school aid fund, which is now millions less for everybody. Because, you know, again, that school aid fund gets divided up by the number of kids in the state. So it means the school aid fund is going to have less money in it. So um, these kids, some of that money, they, they still will get the per-pupil allowance in the new districts. So they will, those districts will get money for those kids. Right. But, again, you know, districts have different personalities, different populations, different needs. Um, and now in a matter of one year, you know, to have an influx of just a massive amount suddenly is, 
is challenging. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm also thinking just physical physical space. space. Exactly. I mean, the buildings only have so much room for so many students, and now their populations are doubled. Right, and these are small districts moving into some neighboring districts that are also not very big. So. Right. You and I, John, live in a small district with 3,000 kids. Imagine if we had to absorb, like, 1,000 kids. There's no room for them. We can't do it. Right. Right. We just can't physically do it. And, of course, where we live, uh, we're landlocked, too. We have no room to build anything. (laughs) And these are, again, I don't know enough about this is over on the other side of the state, so I don't know the geography over there. But then the other piece is Pontiac um, was one of the ones that they were looking at dissolving. Mm -hmm. But... um, Again, they have a challenged population, a lot of urban issues. Their district has been, you know, raided by the charter schools. Um, lots of just challenges. And they're in um, Oakland County, and my understanding is the surrounding districts didn't want them. Jeez, that's great. So there's nowhere for them to go. Yeah, so they can't even graduate their kids. So they're trying to figure out a way to keep Pontiac afloat. So they made this disillusion law for only districts with 2,500 students or less. Because oh. obviously the goal is they're going to start consolidating districts is their goal. Right. So um, they made it for 2,500 less, plus they've lost, I think it's 10% of their students over the last two years to, oh. you know, chart schools of choice. So Pontiac fits that, they fit the, you know, 10% loss, but they, you know, they're, fi- they're 5,000. So they changed, they made the law smaller because they couldn't figure out what to do with Pontiac. Jeez. So Pontiac's still floating. Now, some of us would say that if a school district is in that much distress, the state should step in earlier and help manage the crisis, not yeah. just wait for it to become a crisis and then um, dissolve them. Because these districts were literally out of money. Like, they cannot open their doors in the fall without help. Right. But it's being characterized as fiscal mismanagement. Now, I don't know enough about those two districts to know if that's a true statement or not, but I can say I can speak to the experience folks have had in West Michigan there's not one thing that has been fiscally mismanaged over here, but there are districts that are in financial distress. Right. Because Lansing has defunded us. It's interesting how this is all going. Now, one of the biggest debates besides the budget in Michigan and many other states across the country is over what they're calling common core standards and an expansion of the Educational Achievement Authority. Can you uh, explain to us what this debate is all about and how this came together? Sure, sure. Those are actually two different things. So okay. Um, there's, let's talk about Common Core first. And it's interesting, John, I've, I've come around on this. I originally, I heard about Common Core and I read some of the, like, hype and I thought, oh my gosh, what are we doing? More, you know, more requirements. And, and I, I heard that, oh, they're going to get rid of, like, you're no longer going to read the classics. And, you know, I was like, what the heck? You know, how, you know, more literature and it's all about, you know, nonfiction and, and so I was a little, like, worried, and so I started doing some research on my own, and I actually talked to our head of curriculum in our district and found out that it was actually quite the opposite, that, oh. in fact, Common Core is all about critical thinking. And I actually saw, because we get presented, any new curriculum gets presented to the school board. I mean, we're talking thousands of pages of, you know, developed materials. Right. And um, which made me appreciate the work that those folks do ten times more because it's very it's invisible people don't see it but the work is tremendous and I was amazed at how thorough this curriculum was um, it really is about critical thinking and it's about you know taking kids to that it's very much the anti just fill in a bubble test type of learning it was much more well you know there still will be bubble tests because that's just where our nation's gone um, it. It allowed districts, it basically standardized some curriculum so that there's sort of a, you know, similarity across the board in what kids are learning, 
but it, there's enough flexibility that a district can tailor it to sort of their needs. So you still can have, you know, the classics and whatnot, but there might be some, you know, an angle of teaching or a way of asking questions about it that's maybe slightly different. Um, the, di- the biggest differences that, you know, I saw were at, you know, the elementary level in science and social studies. Um, again, that nonfiction material and using it to learn in a way that, you know, in, uh, reinforces critical thinking. So to me, that's always a good thing. Um, I did enough research on it and talked to enough top experts in the field, and they all said it's a really good program. We are one of the only states now holding out. Um, it is not passed. The budget, you know, the school budgets have gone through, the governor signed it, and Common Core is not part of it. Interestingly, um, it's fascinating. Uh, the biggest hype against Common Core is coming from the far, far right. It's this notion of government takeover and government telling us what to do, which is funny because when it comes to our schools, that's, that's been going on for a really long time. That's well, yeah. nothing new. <laughs> so, um, they you know, are moving more towards these MAP tests, which actually are far better than the MEEP, which is what we have in Michigan, a terrible standardized test. Um, you know, it actually, a lot, it was, a lot, frankly, a lot of good changes coming from it. If we're going to have standardized tests and do all this competition based on testing, you at least want a decent test and a curriculum where everybody's on the same page. So, I mean, right now we're measuring apples to pineapples, you know. Um, you know, supposedly Michigan is, you know, way behind some other states that you and I would be very surprised at. I, I, I still, because of the MEEP test, it's not the same test as another state. So how do you, every state has their own test. I mean, that's just crazy. So how do you compare? So I have, I have just, I mean, I've talked to enough experts and heard enough speakers on the topic um, that it's generally a good idea and that it was developed by, you know, top experts. Interestingly, the concept for Common Core came out of originally the, a governor's conference. Hmm. The governor's association is dominated mostly by Republican governors, because there's more Republican governors than Democrats. So this is very much not a partisan issue. Um, I was at a conference where Jeb Bush spoke in support of it, Rick you know, Schneider spoke in support of it, as well as many prominent Democrats. So it's really not a partisan issue. Uh, there are some you know, groups that have decided to make it you know, a big issue. There were concerns. I did hear last night some talk about some states are saying that there's privacy issues and that um, that some of the data is getting sent to the federal government and it's being used to advertise to children. And I, and I truthfully, I, I don't know the veracity. I don't know if that's true or not. Right. Sometimes I wonder if stuff just gets put on the Internet and if that's all true or not. Obviously, if that sort of thing's happening, yes, we don't want that happening. I, I guess the the reality is, is advertising is going to be happening to our children in many ways. <laughs> so well, yeah. I think we're past all that. Yeah. But, no, we don't want the federal government helping it along. I understand that. Um, I, and I'll be honest, I, haven't, I don't know enough about those claims to know if that's true or not. But that's the claims being made, and that's the, reason, the claims that in Michigan we need to look at this more carefully mm. before we adopt it. Right. Most of the rest of the country has adopted it. We have not. Uh, and my understanding is it's going to create an absolute, absolute nightmare for our school districts who have spent the last three years getting ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we literally are like, okay, well, what now? Do we revert back to the old curriculum, which now doesn't comply with federal requirements? Um, how, do our, how, will that, how will our kids for, like, college admissions 
exactly. the rest of the country has this, and this is what the colleges are looking to, how will that impact our children? Right. So there's a lot of things to be worried about. I do think in the end, I'm hoping common sense will prevail in Michigan. They're planning to have hearings throughout the summer on this. Um, you know, I don't know any education experts who really aren't on board. Um, the folks that aren't on board are not in the business of education. Right. Well, Which, which is a re- recurring theme if you go to Lansing these days. The <laughs> yeah. folks setting our laws right now are not in the education business. And, in fact, well, I shouldn't say that. Some of them are actually in the education business right, in the, the private term. Yeah. But actual educators, people who have PhDs, people who have devoted their lives to you know, learning styles and improving how we teach children, working on challenges in our urban areas, all that stuff, those folks are now very much discounted as too self-interested to be setting policy. Right. So I, I can't imagine any other um, profession where that would be the case, you know, ignoring doctors' inputs to set laws that cover doctors. Right. Imagine. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're doing now. So, And I've sat in rooms with these so-called experts who are not in the business of education, don't have a degree, have never taught, and they're sitting there telling us all that, you know, we are all just too self-interested to be setting policy. <laughs> Yeah. But, but they're going to they're gonna tell us what to do because they know better. Right. And some of the stuff they're saying, you know, um, we'll talk about, you talked about the EAA. Um, that's the, it's called the Education Achievement Authority. It is a separate from the Common Core, separate issue. It is a um, basically um, probably the biggest power, well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say could be one of the biggest power grabs in the state of the state, our state's history. Hmm. Uh, by the government, interestingly enough, pushed by a Republican legislature and a Republican governor. Um, to essentially do massive, massive takeovers of districts all over the state. The claim originally was that it was needed to help the failing bottom school districts um, and take, you know, there would be a a new state-run school district that's statewide. And the original legislation took over the bottom 5% of schools every single year. So obviously every year you gobble up another 5%, another 5%, another 5%, you're going to have pretty big school district pretty quickly. We worked really, really hard, a group of us. We got it stopped in December when they had lame duck, crazy legislation going on. Right. It did come back in February. They reconfigured the education committee. They frankly took off anybody who remotely knew anything about education, removed them from the committee, and put on a bunch of people who are not savvy on education, put them on the committee. And so they were able to get it through, and eventually it passed on the House side. Hmm. But it did pass in a much more modified form. Uh, so it's capped at 50 schools, and there's at least an exit plan on how to get out of the EAA. Hmm. And there are some quality controls, whereas the initial legislation didn't have any of that. Um, and it additionally, you know, they claim it's about failing schools, but the first bill actually had in there what we call an empty building grab. So if you're in a district that does not have a failing school, like my own district, we don't have anyone that's academically failing, um, you know, according to their definition, that, you know, bottom 5%. Um, but if we decided to be, we had to be fiscally responsible and do some consolidation, save money, put you know kids into one building, um, that empty building, the EAA was going to have basically a right of first refusal to move a charter school into that building oh. anywhere in the state, even oh, if nice. the districts weren't failing. Mm-hmm. So that seems to indicate this is more. This has, this doesn't seem to be just about failing schools. <laughs> so, right. Because they can already take over the failing school. Why do they need the empty building down the street to open a charter school? Yeah. Uh, so it seems to show that it's a much bigger agenda. They did take that provision out of the final bill, but it obviously is something that demonstrates motive. Yeah. And 
the real the real plans. And they'll probably try to put it back in at some other point. They might, and they might. Yeah, we've got it capped at fifty. There's nothing to say they won't uncap it. They did right. that with charter schools. There used mm-hmm. to be a cap last year. They lifted the cap. We basically are going to have, I think, more charter schools per capita than any other state in the country. Hmm. There's more. I think we're the second highest as far as school of choice options in the entire nation. Right. So if school choice is the answer, John, and charter schools are the magic answer, we should, within five to ten years, have the best test scores in the nation. Well, there's that's that's the next question that I was going to go to, which, of course, there are so many factions in many state governments, but a lot here in Michigan, that believe charter schools and private schools can do a better job of educating their kids. Well, what kind of proof do they offer that verifies those They don't things? have any. They've got, we've got, it's about 50-50, about 50% of charter schools are doing well and 50% aren't, and it's about the same with our traditional public schools. And what's amazing is I could at least intellectually understand if you let a thriving charter school expand. Mm -hmm. We have now passed a law that lets any charter school expand, and you know who's expanding the fastest? The The ones that are doing the worst. (laughs) So we're actually letting charter schools that take our taxpayer money continue to expand even though their track record is poor. So, I mean, that to me is... If this is about children, as I keep being told it is, um, why are we, and not adults, then why are we letting the adults who run the failing schools continually expand their operation in the state of Michigan? Other states will not allow for that. Our state allows for it. Now, here's a question that's probably, again, speculation, but I think there's some truth to this. And could it be fair to say that a lot of this so-called crisis was deliberately fabricated by certain corporate interests who are looking to benefit financially from disrupting the public school system? You know, it's funny because I, I, I like to think I'm a pretty pragmatic person and I, I really don't think of myself as like a conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Um, but ultimately, stop conspiring against me and I won't call you a, I won't be a conspiracy <laughs> theorist. At some point, I'm not a conspiracy theorist because it really is a conspiracy. Right. Um, uh, and it's not even like, John, it's not like we're, you know, like we've had people say, oh, take your tin, you know, get your tin hats out. You know, the reality is, these groups have been, the Detroit News uncovered um, a group of folks meeting secretly, um, government leaders, the governor's top people and some, some of these other people who've been pushing this agenda for 20 years, in, and including some of the for-profit charter folks, meeting in private in the Detroit area. They call themselves Skunk Works after a secret project for bomber planes in World War II. Right. Um, and the Detroit News uncovered it, and their plan uh, that got uncovered was to essentially get education down to $5,000 per child and create, you know, a massive cyber school where everybody's just going to sit home and apparently learn online. Hmm. I have no idea how child care works and all the other things that, you know, these folks, this group of mostly men who <laughs> apparently rich. don't have anything to do with raising yeah. children. Very wealthy um, men. <laughs> I, I don't know. Nobody seems to have thought that piece through, how that's supposed to work, right. uh, that, you know, third graders can't just sit home alone all day. But... Um, the bottom line is that is that that was their plan. It was uncovered. The Detroit News, a conservative publication, uncovered the story. Mm-hmm. There was outrage. Um, you know, they claimed they were just brainstorming and they couldn't have the traditional education entities at the table because, again, traditional education people just are too set in their ways to really change. Right, because they actually do the work. Right, and could have raised issues about like things like, well, how does that work? A third grader really can't just sit in front of a computer all day to work. They need recess. They need art. They need music. You know, they need a parapro to help them. They might need a social worker. Our high schoolers need guidance counselors to help get them to college or help them with social issues or, you know, all those things that make school school, these folks don't want. 
because it's cheaper to, you know, obviously they want to do it on the cheap, and then they, there is a desire to make money off of it. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, if someone can make money off of it and still provide all those services, have at it. If you can prove to me that that's better mm-hmm. and that it still provides all the services, I have no problem with that. But it's not a level playing field. No. They're getting to make a profit because they don't have to provide all those services that you and I actually want for our kids. Right. They don't have to provide busing, which the vast majority of districts do. They don't have to pay into the pension fund, which we're mandated to do. Um, and that's one of our biggest, biggest costs for every district in the state. It's a huge, huge part of the budget. And, of course, we want to you know, honor our teachers and honor the promises that have been made to them. But Lansing has now, that was supposed to be a Lansing problem. They, it's a state pension fund, and that's supposed to be their problem. They have now pushed that back to the local districts so that that in the last four years has just escalated out of control, um, three years I guess it's been, and uh, that has become one of the biggest problems. So while this defunding has happened simultaneously, they've pushed this massive pension liability to us. The charter schools don't have that. Right. So, again, I recognize their teachers aren't getting that retirement package either, but we're paying for massive legacy costs for teachers that aren't with us anymore either. Right. And the charters don't have to do that. Right. So that's, frankly, that's where the charters are making their profit because they don't have to pay into the pension system or pay for busing. And, frankly, we all know they steer special ed kids away. Right. Um, and so they, they basically take everything that's expensive and push it back to the traditional schools who are dying you know so it is a it's so yeah is it a conspiracy um you know i i do think there is a master plan i think we have a really patient group and i know because i know some people who worked in the engler administration going back you know uh back to the you know 90s early to mid 90s and i've been hearing about this sort of notion of using technology and online learning for a long time and that this was going to be the answer to all our woes and, indeed, that's the agenda that's being pushed. Um, the EAA, one thing I didn't talk about, their model is they use a system called Buzz, and the kids sit in front of computer screens for much of the day. And that's how they're learning. And they're using a lot of Teach for America kids. Uh, I think there were some teacher certification problems. So let's just say they're not hiring our best and brightest teachers. Right. Well, the other thing, too, if you're only working on screen time, how do you know the kid's actually in front of the computer? How do you know the kid's actually doing what they're supposed right, to be doing? Right, and that's for, that's for cyber schools. The EAA, I, I mean, the EAA, they do go to school. They are mm-hmm. showing up in a school building. It's just the model of learning is very much online. They do have teachers or, you know, Teach for America students and different um, folks in the classroom with them monitoring their progress, but it's definitely a different model where the kid's learning more from the computer. Um, and the teachers more sort of supervising it and then moving them to the next level. So I think for some kids, John, it probably works just fine. Right. Um, I just know that for some it probably doesn't, and what are we doing about those kids? So um, I just don't think that the end-all, be-all is technology is great, but it's a tool. It's not a substitute for teachers. Right. And there's a notion that that seems to be the case right now, and I, 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 I'm confident that you know, time will prove that is just a, you know, terribly untrue. I think online learning probably forcing a lot of colleges offer it. Um, certainly, high schoolers who live in rural areas, if they want to access, you know, AP classes that they don't have, there's a lot of reasons that technology can be very good, and nobody is sitting there saying that it shouldn't exist for those reasons. But again, it is not a substitute for teachers. No, it is not a substitute for classroom engagement and group projects and all the different things that actually the new economy requires. And um, so, it's interesting to me that this particular group. Uh, and it's a small group. That's what's very frustrating in the state of Michigan, and I, I think nationally. It's a, not a huge group that's driving this agenda, but they're very vocal and they're very powerful and they're very well-funded. 
and they have done a good job getting legislators um, on board in states, you know, that have become very conservative and pushing their agenda through very, very quickly uh, with little public debate, and, and they've, they've done a good job. I mean, so, and I do think it's a group that's been very patient, and they've really had this plan for a long time to figure out how to get more tax dollars into um, private company pockets, and, and they've done it. So um, it, it is indeed frustrating because I, I, I am confident that the test results in the end are, are – we're not going to see the improvement that's being promised. I, right. just, I don't, because I think the model that needs to happen is, yes, we need investment in schools. Yes, we need more investment in social services to help our struggling schools. And there's a wonderful model down the street, which, again, we don't have the data yet, but I am confident, because it's just common sense, it's going to work. So Grand Rapids Public has a school called Harrison Park Elementary. The Grand Rapids Community Foundation and several philanthropists are partnering with them to do um, basically a college guarantee for every kid who signs a contract and goes through there. They're, produ- they're doing like a college-bound culture where they do tours and people from colleges come visit and colleges adopt hallways. They're, provide- they're partnering with um, a group called KSSN. This is like a social services network for our area so that there's social workers and medical care that extends to families, uh, groups that can help with barriers to parents have being employed. I mean, so many great things are going on in that school. That's the model we should be following. And I am confident that in the end, if we stack the EAA against them and see where the kids are in 10 years, I, I, I don't need to wait to see what the answer is going to be. I know the answer. <laughs> so, right. so, and interestingly, it's, going to, it's costing them a lot of money. They have to raise a lot of money. Interestingly, the EAA, I was just up at a conference, and I think they're like $60 million towards their $110 million goal. They have to raise millions and millions and millions to make the EAA work. So it's not actually scalable. So it's interesting. The EAA is costing a bundle of money, and they've had to do early loans, and they've had their own financial woes. So it's interesting that they have taken over districts, you know, that have, you know, financial woes, and they find themselves having their own financial woes. Yeah, well, I've, I also find it interesting that all these groups that are pushing less and less government are, in fact, causing some of the biggest government expansions that we have ever seen. Yeah, and I, I am starting to hear from, I'm hearing from parents on both sides of the aisle on this. Um, when I talked and traveled the state and I'm meeting with school districts across the state, you know, very big cross-section politically, and um, people are not happy about that. People ultimately, I recognize there are exceptions. There are exceptions where there's some, you know, schools where there's lots of problems, um, because of socioeconomic issues where a a mom would want to opt out. I'm certainly understanding that on a micro level. I get that. Um, But most people around the state really like their local school system. They they really are tired of being under attack. And as I talk to them and we start educating them about the financial issues and why it's not your local school board just irresponsibly spending money, you know, they're getting mad. And um, they should be mad because there's a desire to, you know, they're coming for everybody. You know, they, they're, you know, the plan seems to be to defund us and then, um, privatize. I don't know, I guess take us over. Yeah, they <laughs> so, want to privatize it for profit. I, you know, they, like. there's a desire, I think, to have mega, mega school districts. I've heard some folks say that the governor in Michigan wants us to model Florida, which has gigantic ISD districts. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, every person I know who lives in Florida has opted out of the public school system because it's such a, it, it, it performs so poorly. Right. Well, then they all wind up in the charter schools and the private schools, which is what these people want. Right. So it's funny because, you know, people who want less government and want their taxes lower, um, they're going to pay so much more in private tuition than any amount they're contributing to the public schools. And your community dies with it. Now it doesn't matter what you're, you know, if you live in a a community where you like your neighbors and you like the store up the street. And a lot of our communities are anchored by our schools. 
and that goes away if just if that doesn't matter anymore, along with real estate values and everything else. So, <laughs> so. of course. What else is there? Um, in, a, you know, in a previous podcast, I spoke with Paula Lancaster, who's the chair of the Special Education Foundations and Technology Department at Grand Valley State University here in West Michigan. She mentioned that charter schools have the ability to exclude special needs students based on their curriculum mission, and private schools have absolutely no obligation to offer any special education assistance at all. So if charter schools and private schools really do become... Uh, the replacement for the public school system. What are the parents of the special needs children supposed to do in order to get the help for their children? You know, and I, I have no idea, John, <laughs> because I've asked that question. And, of course, the charter schools, they are public schools, so they legally are supposed to provide the services. Mm-hmm. But I have spoken to parents of special ed children, and they have said absolutely they don't. They, they've steered them. They've like been like, well, you know, we can help. But, boy, Grand Rapids does really good work on this. You should really, they, you know, you might want to look back at Grand Rapids. Right. Well, Paula said one of the things is they can declare in their mission, okay, we are, we are a college-focused school, and therefore we will accept only students with certain grade points and certain class uh, agenda. Yeah, and I know my understanding is the charters are not supposed to have selective admissions um, in Michigan. I think they can in other states. Now, that's try- they're trying to change that. That was a bill that was pending. They were going to try to ch- try to allow for selective admissions, you know, be like a city high school right. where you have to actually apply to get in. Um, they are trying to, Lisa Lyons, who's the chair of the Education Committee, did propose a bill like that. And, of course, we were outraged because, if, once again, if it's all about school choice, You've got to be able to take everyone. We all locally, we have to take every child. You know, we can't send children away in our local traditional school districts. Right. What I have heard is that technically, and Paula may have some different understandings of the law, but my understanding is technically they're not supposed to send kids away. But you're right. They can have a mission, like a, you, you know, a prep school, college prep school or things like that. But my understanding is they legally are supposed to provide it, but they use, you know, kind of code and, they figure out ways to essentially say, you're going to do better down the street. Right. And they essentially get away without providing the services. Um, and I suspect some do better than others, um, just like everything. Um, and I don't have the specific numbers or the breakdowns, you know, by, say, schools run by National Heritage Academies or, you know, the, the you know, for-profit charter school chain that's quite large in Michigan. Um, so, but I do know, you know, for me it's anecdotal, just, repeated stories from parents who have kids with special needs that the charter schools have not been helpful to them. Right. And then, in fact, our traditional public schools have done, while it doesn't mean they haven't had to fight for their child or advocate for their child, um, they've been able to get, you know, pretty decent services through our traditional public schools. So, you know, we're legally required to do that. Somehow the charter schools are managing to steer kids away. And you are correct about private schools. My understanding is um, that a lot of them, they contract with, um, again, I'm not in the private school system, so I don't know for sure, but just I've heard that they do, they do do contracts with, say, one of the big public school systems, but that they only do it up to a certain amount of money, and then after that the parent has to help pay for it. Or That's what I've heard. Right, and then the other problem, of course, is if the public schools are suddenly gone, then what happens? Right, we have a skeleton standing there with, you know, the kids who um, can't get a ride, because, you know, since the charter schools and private schools don't, well, some of them do, but they don't have to provide transportation, you know, and our, our charter schools, I think, largely do not provide transportation, so the kids have to have a way to get to school, yeah. so that immediately means you're, you know, cutting out anybody whose family doesn't have a car, so that's your, you know, people who tend to have even less money, 
Um, and then, um, you know, kids who have special needs, because, you know, it, it means that, you know, the the core school districts will be left with kids who have the biggest challenges. If they're, if they're left at all. If they're left at all. So, yeah, you've got, like, a school, like I said, like Inkster and Buena Vista, they have now been dissolved. Right. They've siphoned those kids off. So I suppose for smaller school districts, that seems to be the plan, to divide them up and consolidate. But I suspect that some of that consolidation will lead to further flight from schools. I was just reading an article yesterday about Detroit, which now has, it's almost half the children now are in either, you know, through school of choice or charter schools. So half the people who are children in Detroit have left the Detroit public schools. And what's happened is, so you just keep, they sort of, people are just jumping from ring to ring to ring. So people who live in Detroit are going to Ferndale. People who live in Ferndale are now driving to Royal Oak. People who, so everybody's just moving over one more community. So nobody's going to school where they live. They all just keep moving to the next suburb. And again, is that, is that overall good for our communities? Well, yeah, and especially for special needs kids. And one of the things that would concern me as a parent is that if there are no real requirements or regulations, then that means there's no oversight, there's no accountability, there's nothing. Right. I mean, some of these schools, especially in the private schools, I mean, they're probably not doing this, but there's absolutely nothing that says that they could not take all the special needs kids and just put them in a room, put a supervisor in there and say, well, that's our special education. And right. there's now, nothing to prevent think, them from I think doing the, that. Yeah, and I don't know, again, I can't speak for private. I know Charter, because I've heard these people say they would say, we have to comply with the law just like everyone else. Uh, you know, my, whether they are or not, I don't know. I'm not on the front lines on that issue. Mm-hmm. There are some parents in the state, you know, who are very, very dedicated issue, I know, who are really looking heavily into that and putting pressure on the charter schools. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of crazy. Well, Michigan, of course, we're seeing all the major problems here, and uh, some people would even say that on certain issues we're a test state. I would agree. People <laughs> love see. that. We're, I, there seems to be a... Uh, Let's make our kids an experiment. <laughs> yeah, and see if we can pass this kind of stuff in other states. The thing is, we're not the only state having these problems. How important is going to is the upcoming election for 2014 going to be as far as school funding issues across the country? You know, I think it's pretty important, and it's um, and I want to be. It's interesting, you know. While in Michigan, this is very much you know a partisan issue because we have the Republicans in full control of both houses and the governor's office, so they're able to push through a lot of this very extreme legislation quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, these laws are getting passed in other states. Um, they are, uh, you know, I think, ours are probably some of the more extreme laws, but um, they are happening elsewhere. But I wanted to say, and I, I, I talked to parents about this. This is not just. Um, a Republican agenda. Um, you know, uh, President Obama's education secretary is very pro-charter school. Right. Um, and frankly, uh, you know, Michelle Rhee, who identifies herself as a Democrat, um, came out of Washington, D.C. and was like the rock star who converted all of D.C. into, you know, charter schools and was subsequently followed by a cheating scandal. <laughs> Supposedly the test scores went way up and then they learned people were cheating. Yeah. Um, but the... There are many, there are Democrats who buy into this agenda, too. Right. So, um, you know, Arnie Junkin out of Chicago, we know there were the huge Chicago teacher strikes. It was largely driven by consolidating schools, closing schools, um, you know, massive cutting of teachers, increased class sizes, all of that, frankly, because of the charter schools that had, you know, really, really decimated Chicago public. So, and that was all under, you know, Arnie Duncan's purview. So um, I, I want to be just clear that there are, 
it, it really is. This battle is, we've got it on all fronts. Um, but um, on a state-to-state -state basis, most funding comes through the state government. So, so the, the national policies, yeah, you get No Child Left Behind and things like Common Core and stuff that, you know, maybe are pushed and tied to funding. Mm -hmm. But overall, most of um, the things that impact your school's day-to-day -day life is a, a lot, most of it's your state government. Right. So there's no question that we are at a pivotal, pivotal crossing point in the next election cycle. I really do believe if, if something doesn't change where either the legislators decide, you know, we need to really fund schools, which given our current batch, they don't want to, so that's not going to change. We are making a decision, at least in our state, and I think a lot of other states are in a similar boat, where we're basically deciding whether we're going to gut public education or not. Right. And um, I, I've said this, it's a little bit... And, and it, this is by no means meant to denigrate the South, but in the South, most anybody who's like middle class or higher opts out of public education. Hmm. So if you meet, if you go to like a school like University of Virginia or South Carolina or any of those schools, and you talk to kids who grew up in the South, I, you will be challenged to find somebody who went to public school. Most of them went to private school. Unless they're from low-income families. Right, unless you're from a low-income family, right, where then the odds of trying to get out is much, much harder mm -hmm. So and get to college. So... Um, I am a firm believer that our public schools, you know, it's, it's the opportunity for all and that when we start, you know, opting out of the public school system, we, we drastically change the way a state looks and the way it behaves. So um, while we have discrepancies where some districts are more affluent than others, I understand that, but we still accept and educate all children. And I think that's really important. And we, the upper Midwest has this really proud history of having really pretty good schools. Yeah. And if you talk about Wisconsin and Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and Michigan, they're really, you know, again, there are exceptions, and we know we have challenges in our urban school districts. I am not ignoring that, and we get accused of that a lot, that we don't care about those kids. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a lot of school districts that are doing it really well. Why are we tearing down the whole system? Right. Like, that's a crazy thing. So one little part of the system isn't working, and, of course, you and I know why it's not working. There's huge socioeconomic barriers. So, but instead of dealing with that we instead decide to throw out the whole system. So I do think we're at a crossroads where we, at least in the state of Michigan, are going to be deciding, do we want to look like Alabama or not? You know, do we want to uh, create a system of total haves and have-nots where anybody who's got money, and, and, and frankly, when I say haves, haves means total middle-class people saving up $20,000 or more a year for tuition. And most people I know, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And that means now you can't save for college for your kid. And that means now your kid's going to have massive loans in college, which he or she might already have to have anyway. So, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, it's just a thinking long term here what a good deal our education system has actually been. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, 20000 a year, like you said, that's a mortgage payment for some oh, people. Oh, it's huge. And, and that's not for college. That's no. just for grade school. That might be fourth grade. Yeah. So, um, and that is, in fact, what our governor has done. This is the funny part. Um, uh, a lot of these people who are at the table who are talking about how to reform the schools um, and park kids in front of computer screens, interestingly enough, they don't have their own children doing that. Oh, no. Um, the governor has school. his daughter at a private school in Ann Arbor that actually has prohibited the use of computer learning in that format. Yes. They have prohibited it. Um, and then, I mean, he did, to be fair, I think his first older two kids did go to public school, but his youngest daughter is at a very elite private school. And then the other folks at this table, frankly, the, their kids all go to excellent suburban schools that are not using this, 
this crazy online model. So it's interesting that they want to set policy for everybody else's kids, but just not their own. Right. <laughs> well, you know, because that's uh, that's the way it should be. <laughs> right, right. It's more about so, business. I mean, that's my thing. And same with the charter schools. Um, in our area, John, there are some leaders um, in the charter school movement, and interestingly, they send their children to our school district. Right. <laughs> I know quite a few people who are employed by charter school systems, and their kids are going to public schools. Yes, yes. It's so it's an interesting thing. I mean, if the model is so great, why aren't your own children in the model? Right, exactly. When it comes to voting, uh, because we're you know, as long as we're continuing on with elections— um, some people have a tendency to vote for only like the one or top two people on the ballot, like the governor and maybe the senator, and then they skip the rest. And there's even a tendency to think that no proposal on the ballot in regard to school funding and there's nothing to worry about. But voters really need to do more. They really need to start doing some research on this because these are very, very important issues for just Absolutely. not just, so not just example, the top names. For example, we talked about that yeah. state legislator. I mean, that mm-hmm. state rep. I mean, honestly, the truth is, your state rep has, like, more impact on your life than the president. Right. <laughs> so in so many ways, you know, how the House is voting directly impacts all of your lives more than the president. Oh, yeah. You know, as they say, the more local it is, the more impact it has on your life. So, exactly. you know, your little local city commission that, you know, sets the, you know, decides whether there's going to be parks and good roads really impacts your life. You know, so the... Um, need to pay attention is definitely greater than ever, and we've got to, um, you know, I mean, I, what I'm trying to do is to get people to, you know, I mean, we all have the issue we care about, mine is public education, so I am trying my best to, you know, make sure people know on both sides of the aisle um, who are education champions. So, you know, giving, you know, so for example, I was at an event um, last night uh, in a district, and there is a a very Republican legislator in our area who actually has been really pretty good on schools. He has been, he admitted that it's been really tough, that he's been bullied, he's been threatened, they've threatened to primary him, because he, you know, he held out against the EAA. Mm-hmm. And he, um, you know, he, he has, while I don't agree with him on a lot of policies uh, and not everything on education, He does believe in um, public schools, and he does think that choice should exist, but I think he understands that there's a need for a level playing field, you know. So um, he understands the pension problem. He understands there's a lot that he understands. So that is someone who, if you live in his district, you know, he's doing his best to fight for the cause. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish there were more of him. Um, and that's my goal is to find more of him, right. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> he's a little bit of a lone wolf right now. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, hopefully that'll turn around. Well, I know you have to get ready to go to this seminar this morning or this rally in Lansing. It's actually, yes, it's an education thing in Lansing. <laughs> right, yeah, so you need to get going. So I'll tell you what, we were going to ask you about uh, news sources and reliable places where people can get information. We'll just do that separately, and then I'll put those links on, and uh, we'll talk about it at another point. Okay, as far that as sounds that great, Because I know you're in a hurry, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, and it's been really helpful, very informative, and uh, a lot of good stuff. Okay, great, John. Thanks so much. appreciate it, Elizabeth. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Well, we're pleased to be able to say that Elizabeth made it to that rally in Lansing just in time, and she did email me links to two sites that she says have the best information on the public school budgeting problems. 
For Michigan residents, you can visit michiganparentsforschools.com. This site was put together by parents of children in public schools here in Michigan, and it has a lot of great resources and information about what's happening with the Michigan education budget problems. Now, on the national level, the best place to get information on both different states' problems and the entire country is run by Diane Ravitch. She's a research professor of education, and from 1991 to 1993, she was assistant secretary of education under President George H.W. Bush. Her blog can be found at dianeravitch.com, and it has an incredible amount of information about the public education crisis and how each state is either dealing with it or trying to eliminate it. We have links to both of those websites right on the main page for this podcast at specialparentsconfidential.com. You'll definitely find some great and helpful resources with both of those sites. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.